Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentations. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. And, and as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a partnership between the Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to be working as a partnership with, um, with uh, AMP, um, and uh, that's a short for it. And you'll hear more about the organization and what they offer um, as the program goes on. Um, and today's program is What's New in Diagnostic Technologies for People Living with Blood Cancers? And it's part two of the role of diagnostic technologies in transforming the treatment of people living with cancer. Today's program is supported by Estellas US LLC and Foundation Medicine. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. We have over 231 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada, India, Iraq, and the United Kingdom, so it's really a global call as well. And today's program is also in collaboration with many other cancer and blood cancer organizations, and so we really um, appreciative of their helping to spread the word about the program, and all of you are great interest in the program today. So before we, um, I introduce our, our speakers, um, I'm going to actually ask you just a few questions just to start, um, but to get a sense of what you know um, before the program begins. It really helps us in planning future programs. So the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the definition of diagnostic technology and biomarkers and why they are important for blood cancer treatment. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand how diagnostic technologies and biomarkers contribute to and transform blood cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of new in emerging diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of blood cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand specific questions to ask the healthcare team about diagnostic technologies and biomarkers, including how to access resources about clinical trials. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the significance of diagnostic technology and biomarker clinical trials as an option for blood cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. 
I really want to thank you all for participating in this in these questions, and um, it really will help us as we plan all the future programs going forward. And now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is the Chief Lymphoma Program, Associate Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will be addressing a definition of biomarkers and diagnostic technologies and why they are important for blood cancer in the context of COVID-19 and how they inform lymphoma treatment. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's my pleasure to be here, and thanks to everyone for being on this call today. The, the uh, topic of biomarkers is an interesting one. It's not a, a topic I've uh, discussed previously in uh, talks with uh, uh, patients and caregivers uh, previously, and so I had to give a lot of thought. Really, I think the the discussion of biomarkers in its current state is owed a lot to a, a report that's about a decade old from the Institute of Medicine that basically recognized that one of the factors that was limiting improvements in our ability to, uh, in the outcomes uh, in people with cancer was our lack of biomarkers. So that prompted investigators and, and the National Cancer Institute in particular to really prioritize research into biomarkers and over the past decade, I think a lot of strides have been made. Uh, what are biomarkers? Well, specifically, biomarkers are biological features of a tumor or a person that can help with either diagnosis or prediction of outcomes. Biomarkers are important because fundamentally, cancers are very heterogeneous diseases. And people in whom cancers might exist are even more diverse than the cancers they might carry. For example, I am a lymphoma doctor. That means that I deal with on a daily basis about 100 different kinds of lymphomas. But even if we look at one of those individual lymphoma subtypes, for example, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, in fact, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is probably very heterogeneous in and of itself with multiple different subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphomas that can behave differently and can behave differently in different people and different environments. So if we're going to improve outcomes of people with cancers like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we need to be able to offer treatments that are most likely to be successful and least likely to be harmful in each circumstance. In other words, we need to refine our approaches to move away from treating populations of people and work on focusing on individuals based on individual characteristics. We have a lot of examples of diagnostic biomarkers that pathologists and clinicians use every day to look for evidence of presence of a tumor to distinguish one form of cancer from another. And so I thought I would give some examples. This is hardly an exhaustive list, but these are just some examples in lymphoma to give you kind of a flavor of some of the things that we look at. And then some of our our colleagues uh, later on the call are going to discuss more sophisticated techniques and, and their application. In general, biomarkers um, really have come in uh, three flavors historically. Uh, probably the most common one is uh, looking for the presence of a protein on a tumor cell um, that can be helpful. I'll give some examples of that. 
about uh, tw uh, 30 years ago in 1990s, a uh, special kind of genetic test called fluorescent in situ hybridization or FISH started to be used more commonly. And now we're really firmly in the genomic era where we're starting to look at the mutations of specific genes that can be associated with uh, outcomes. But that's still, we're really just scratching the, uh, the tip of the iceberg with those. So what are some examples of some diagnostic uh, uh, biome or uh, sorry, uh, predictive, pardon me, prognostic uh, biomarkers? Well, one of the oldest ones in lymphoma is LDH, which is really just looking for the presence of an enzyme in the, in, a, in the bloodstream of people with lymphoma and higher markers have been associated with worse outcomes, but that's a very non-specific kind of biomarker. We've been looking more and more at the presence of proteins that are more specific to cancers. Ki67 or Ki67 is a very common one that is reflective of the proliferation of tumors. And I mentioned also FISH or fluorescent insight hybridization that looks for translocations of certain genes in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. These are all associated with prognosis. So in other words, they can tell you how, whether or not somebody is likely to do well, but they do not necessarily inform how we should be treating somebody. Uh, they don't predict the response to a specific treatment. And that's really where we'd like to end up. So I'll give you a few examples of some predictive biomarkers. Uh, two negative and one positive. So a negative predictive biomarker uh, example is uh, identified again by FISH. It's the translocation uh, between chromosomes 11 and 18 in a special kind of gastric lymphoma called marginal zone lymphoma. And when that's present, it means that the antibiotics that we often use to cure that lymphoma are less likely to work and we should look at using an alternative therapy. A similar example is a mutation in a gene called TP53. This is one of the most commonly mutated genes in all of cancer. And it predicts a poor response to chemotherapy, but interestingly, non-chemotherapy approaches can be much more successful in that kind of uh, mutation. A mutation that in, in fact predicts a positive response to a targeted therapy is a mutation in a gene called EZH2, uh, which is present in about 20% of people with follicular lymphoma, and when that's present, a drug that was just approved last year called tazometastat uh, appears to have a much higher uh, probability of inducing a tumor uh, response. So I think we're we're moving more and more in the direction where we can identify genes that tell us use this treatment, not that one, and uh, we'd like to see more uh, movement in that direction. One of the challenges with developing biomarkers, however, is that they need to be validated in large populations. So it might take thousands of people to discover the biomarkers. And then once you've discovered them, you, know, you need to validate that and then thousands of other patients. And that becomes more and more challenging as we identify smaller and smaller subsets of people with those biomarkers. And so this takes a lot of work, a lot of coordination amongst researchers all over the world, and a lot of participation from uh, people who are interested in lymphoma, for example, lymphoma patients and their caregivers to help us uh, do that work. Uh, I will leave it for there. I'll leave it there for now and pass it back to uh, Dr. Mesner and Dr. Morrow, who's going to talk about more sophisticated biomarkers. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really outstanding and just a wonderfully, wonderful way to begin the program and set the context for our program today. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is. Uh, 
Dr. Michael Morrow, and Dr. Morrow is leader Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing new and emerging biomarkers and diagnostic technologies for blood cancers and how they inform leukemia treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Well, thanks, Carolyn, and thanks, um, everyone, for uh, for joining on this interesting program and, and what great company I, I have. Um, so in the next few minutes, I'll try to um, expand on what you just heard um, on and, and take the approach from the standpoint of, of leukemia. But um, I'm going to talk to you about basically how we've started to look at blood cancers, particularly leukemias, in a much different way. Historically, we would look at the signs and symptoms of diseases where people might be anemic or have very low blood counts or very high blood counts. Of course, we've had the ability to look under the microscope and look at, for example, the blood or the bone marrow where the blood is made, make a diagnosis of all the leukemias, acute leukemias, chronic leukemias. And up until not that long ago, you know, we would generally classify blood cancers by the way they looked and the cells that were abnormal and the way those cells looked and perhaps some of the features those cells had. We pretty recently, and but pretty extensively now, have changed the way we look at blood cancers. And now, um, almost always, we're looking at their genetic makeup. Um, and that's by the use of molecular diagnostics or molecular markers. Um, a little bit of a history lesson. Um, it wasn't that long ago that we really did understand what the blueprints of, of cells, particularly blood cells, were. It was only 1953 that Watson and Crick discovered DNA, uh, which is the the structure of DNA, that is, in cells. And the first ability to read the DNA, to understand what, you know, read the tea leaves, if you will, and understand the sequence was 1967. And about 10 years later, 1977, um, a physician by the name of Sanger developed the ability to have a test where you could take DNA, you could take cells and take the DNA from those cells and try to figure out what what it was saying. Is it is it normal? Is it abnormal? Is there something wrong? What was wrong? And is that what made the cancer tick? Now, fast forward to, um, you know, present, we have obviously uh, tremendous capability of looking at the genetic sequence, um, what the genes are that drive blood cancers, and how they affect uh, a patient's care and their prognosis. The um, basics of genetic sequencing, which is a little bit uh, of a... Um, a quick primer here is that we, we basically break apart the DNA uh, into small pieces, copy it many times, and read it to see if there are differences. There are simple ways, and Dr. Sanger produced really the workhorse ability to um, to read the leaves, or read the tea leaves, if you will, of the DNA sequence, which is a, uh, a bunch of bases um, in, in a different order. It's very simple. It's, uh, it's not ones and zeros. It's A's, T's, C's, and G's, if you know what DNA is. Um, we've come a long way from that even, and now we have what's called next-generation sequencing. That just sounds like it's got to be better. Um, it's really just doing, um, in most cases, the type of sequencing that we started with many times over much faster, many different reads of the DNA. And, you know, if you read something once, you might catch the gist of it. If you read something 10 times, you might remember exactly what it said. If you read it 100 times, you probably could say it back to someone because you've memorized it. So there you go. The more we read the DNA and the, the closer we look, the better we are to detect very small variations and very uh, subtle changes. Let me talk about diseases for a moment. So in, in leukemia in general, uh, for example, acute myeloid leukemia, uh, current research would, would, would be that a patient who's presenting with that diagnosis really right away in most circumstances is going to be able to access and take advantage of 
biomarkers or, or molecular diagnostics where the, the cells will be taken just in the process I've shared with you and the DNA uh, tested maybe at a simple level just to look to see if there are certain genes that are turned on, turned off that would tell us how to treat the patient. There are specific medications for leukemias that have a, a gene turned on that makes the cells grow particularly fast called FLT3. We have very smart molecules that um, help treat leukemia that bears a mutation in something called IDH, um, which is one of the basic cell machinery enzymes that's just gone wrong and, and leads to uh, leukemia. So um, acute leukemia really is often now fingerprinted at the molecular level. That's at the start. You know, as we get into treatment, even more importantly, now we're able to use molecular diagnostics to make sure the leukemia is gone or it's gone below a certain level. Something called minimal residual disease testing after treatment, and, and treatments come a long way, obviously, using targeted drugs. But the techniques of monitoring after treatment are super important, not just, again, showing that the blood and the bone marrow look healthy and the and person is doing well, but we can see no evidence of these genetic fingerprints by these new diagnostic tools. Um, so, so acute leukemia has benefited from this. Chronic leukemias as well. Uh, lymphoid leukemias, I just, we just heard a bit from Dr. Martin on, on lymphoma, and you know, we know that, for example, in CLL, we, can, we now have drugs that block certain enzymes that are abnormal, like the BTK enzyme, brutin tyrosine kinase. And the therapies we have sometimes uh, become ineffective because mutations can develop in the exact enzyme that's uh, being targeted by a drug. So the same tools are used to sort of read the tea leaves, kind of break it down and dig in there and, and get, get to the, the uh, source um, and, and understand why a cancer treatment might, not, might have stopped working and maybe where an alternative might be important. Um, we still use uh, this technology in, in a really basic way for uh, other leukemias, like chronic myeloid leukemia, something I look after quite a bit, where we're able to use powerful uh, techniques to um, sequence um, or really look for specific genes. We know are there. We know they're there at high levels in the beginning and then need to disappear as we get into uh, deep treatment. So, so um, that's a real plus. Um, I'll leave you with something that's rapidly developing and, and is, uh, I think, the future, and that's that the tools we have in sequencing and understanding how changes in DNA affect, affect blood cancers have now spread out to the question of maybe we have changes in our blood and we don't have a cancer and we might have risk of cancer or risk of other problems as, as a result. There's a concept of something called clonal hematopoiesis, which would be means that your blood has elements that are um, spun off from perhaps one cell or a group of cells that are all the same, and they all have probably some alteration, and they may have the potential to trigger a blood cancer later. And interestingly, we've now learned that they may, depending on the change that we see, they may harbor changes that trigger more inflammation. Um, and inflammation is really a cause of not cancer, but heart disease. So as we do tests, for example, in folks that have, had, have survived other cancers, we sometimes see that their blood harbors mutations. Um, there's no blood cancer present, or they may be very subtle things, uh, subtle reductions in the blood counts. And, and such, such a change as clonal hematopoiesis or abnormal sequencing results in the blood is something we, we, we do want to know about because we can help potentially lower risk of cardiovascular disease, we may be able to diagnose cancer faster and better. We may be able to treat it better. So I'll stop there, and I know we have a lot more to talk about, but in leukemias, and this hopefully a primer on genetic sequencing and how it affects our diagnostics, our testing, and even how we follow people who don't have blood cancers is really evolved. Wow. Thank you very much, Dr. Moore. That was very, very interesting and, and really important for people to know about. So thank you very much, and I, I'm excellent presentation. Um, and um, 
our, our next speaker is Dr. William Bensinger, and Dr. Bensinger is uh, with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, SCI's Personalized Medicine Program, Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bensinger will be addressing how to participate in blood cancer clinical trials on biomarkers and diagnostic technologies and access information about these clinical trials and how they inform multi-myeloma treatment. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bensinger. Thank you, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to uh, participate in these programs. And uh, as Dr. Martin has alluded to, this is a new topic for me as well to speak to a uh, lay audience about this. But I thought in the limited time, I would try to talk about two important diagnostic techniques and biomarkers. Dr. Morrow nicely introduced the concept of minimal residual disease, and this is an emerging uh, technology for myeloma as well. We know that it, it, by defining what we call a complete remission, uh, patients can still have uh, tens to 100 million cancer cells in their, in their body in, in myeloma. And these cells are the proverbial needle in a haystack. They're diluted among trillions of normal cells in our bone marrow. So the idea of defining MRD, minimal residual disease, is so technique to look for that rare cancer cell to more stringently define what we call remission. Uh, and there are a couple of technologies used to do this. Uh, the easiest one is flow cytometry. Flow cytometry can uh, detect between one in 10,000 and one in 100,000 cancer cells, and has the advantage that you can do it on a, a new, fresh sample of marrow, and it's pretty easy to do. Most labs have this technology, uh, most pathology labs have this technology and the ability to do this. The second technique requires some of this DNA technology that Dr. Morrow has alluded to, and that uses a technique called next-generation sequencing. In that case, you define a unique marker for each patient's tumor, and then you can go back in subsequent samples and look to define uh, and look for this rare cancer cell. And that has a sensitivity as high as one in a million cancer cells. And this has been shown to be important for predictive value. It's a predictive test for remission, length of remission, and even patients who uh, are MRD negative, that is they don't have detectable cancer cells by these techniques. People, patients who are MRD negative have improved survival over patients who have detectable disease. So this is an important thing in terms of predicting outcome in a more uh, rapidly obtainable way. Now, as far as Participating in trials of this, there really are very few trials that specifically look at biomarkers as an endpoint. Most of the time, these are ancillary trials where they'll look at MRD as part of a new treatment strategy to look at how effective the treatment can be at, at attaining this minimal residual disease state. Having said that, I did find one study uh, at the University of Chicago that looks at MRD, 
And their goal was to determine if patients who are MRD negative can discontinue the maintenance therapy that is commonly prescribed for patients with myeloma. So their hypothesis is that patients who are MRD negative uh, don't necessarily need to be on maintenance therapy. And that's the purpose of this trial. But except for that, there are relatively few studies really looking at biomarkers. Now, the other biomarker that's emerged uh, as important in myeloma is a test for what's called soluble BCMA. So BCMA is an acronym that stands for B-cell maturation antigen. This is a membrane-bound protein that is expressed, highly expressed on malignant plasma cells and has actually become a very important target for immunotherapy. So we have a lot of BCMA-directed antibodies, bispecific molecules, and even CAR T-cells that use BCMA as a target. But it's also been found that BCMA can be cleaved off the surface of myeloma cells and appear in the, in the blood and serum. This is what we refer to as soluble BCMA. And soluble BCMA has uh, important prognostic value. Um, patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma have elevated levels of soluble BCMA compared to patients who don't have myeloma, and they correlate uh, often with the presence of myeloma cells in the bone marrow. And so this has been used and studied in a variety of studies. For example, higher levels of soluble BCMA are found in patients with MGUS or monoclonal gammopathy or smoldering myeloma and are associated with an increased risk of progression to active myeloma. Soluble BCMA may also be useful for monitoring patients' response to therapy. That is, if the soluble BCMA levels are reduced by treatment, uh, those patients have a, a greater chance of obtaining a remission. And so they correlate with the clinical status of patients and have proven, uh, at least in the, in the early studies, to be an important biomarker. But again, as far as participating in a trial focused on soluble BCMA, these are typically ancillary studies that are built into new treatment strategies. So I would say that it's going to be difficult to find a specific uh, study that focuses on this. It's more likely to be found within a trial that you're participating in. And with that, I'll stop. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was incredibly interesting and informative for our participants to know about this. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa. And Dr. Messa is Executive Director, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation's Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health, Antonio Cancer Center, and NCI-designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Messa will be addressing specific questions to ask your healthcare team about blood cancer biomarkers and diagnostic technologies and how they inform myeloproliferative neoplasms or MPN treatment. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Well, 
Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. And this has been a wonderful discussion so far and really like the layout of today's conference as it relates to questions many patients have as it uh, of how laboratory studies, our teams in pathology and laboratory medicine work together to help inform the decision to both start treatment as well as alter treatment. Now, the myeloproliferative neoplasms are some of the chronic leukemias that Dr. Morrow had, had described. And specifically, I'm speaking of essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and myelofibrosis. Let me start by talking about the genetic mutations in these diseases, as these are probably some of the most important as it relates to both diagnosis and practice. Today, I am actively in my clinic seeing patients both before and after this conference. And these very tests are important regarding first the diagnosis as well as treatment. So as it relates to diagnosis, these are diseases of the bone marrow where we believe that there are genetic changes in a series of genes that we call driver mutations. These are genes that help to control the bone marrow and tell them when to make additional cells when we need them, specifically red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And as it relates to the MPNs, there are three different genes that we have found to play a very important role. The first one to be discovered and the most prevalent and important is in the JAK2. JAK2 is a protein that is like an on-off switch for the blood, and if it's mutated, it's stuck in the on position, uh, as if someone flipped the light switch and put a piece of duct tape over it to keep it driving forward. The most common mutation there is the JAK2 V617F. It can be tested by a laboratory test on the peripheral blood and is present in almost 90 to 95% of patients with polycythemia vera and roughly about half of those with essential thrombocythemia or myelofibrosis. The second is calreticulin. This is a different gene, but it still has the same issue. It's still creating an overproduction of cells. Now, this is present only in patients with ET or myelofibrosis, roughly about a third of each of those groups. The final mutation is one in a gene called MPL, and that is present in a, a small percentage, maybe less than 10% of patients with myelofibrosis or ET. Now, what's important is that individuals tend to only have one of these three mutations. They are somewhat independent of one another and mutually exclusive. They are important for your doctor to see, do you possibly have an MPN and help to distinguish it from other causes of an increase in the blood counts, uh, things that can raise the red blood cell count, such as sleep apnea, taking testosterone, living at high altitude, being a smoker things that can elevate the platelet count, such as inflammation, infection, iron deficiency. So they're pretty important. Now, not 100% of patients with MPNs have one of these three mutations, but for polycythemia vera, a very few percentage of patients do not have a JAK2 mutation, either the V617F or the exon 12. 
And then for ET or PV or ET or MF, if they lack all three of these mutations, uh, they uh, they can still be diagnosed with the disease, but the appearance of the bone marrow is incredibly important. In the time that's left, I'll describe for you the other mutations that we look at. So there's additional mutations in there's roughly 40 genes or so that frequently can be ordered through many different laboratories that are associated genes that typically are in what we call a myeloid panel, which are a group of genetic changes common in uh, blood diseases. These other mutations are telling us more about the respective the disease. They sometimes will help tell us whether there is a higher risk of the disease progressing and increasingly, they may tell us whether there's other therapies that may be important or considerations based on the presence or absence of those mutations. So, for example, one of those mutations in more advanced disease are in genes that are called IDH1 and IDH2. And for each of these different genes, there are uh, medicines that have been developed to block that genetic change and hopefully improve the disease, just like we have JAK, JAK inhibitors. I suspect that there will be more targeted therapies that develop over time. So as it relates to MPNs, I'll conclude my part by saying that increasingly, these different changes are helping us give a better fingerprint to one individual's disease and help us be more accurate in terms of our diagnosis, predicting how the disease is gonna behave, and possibly helping us select targeted therapies. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Dr. Mester. Oh, that was superb, Dr. Mester. Thank you so much, and really um, very informative for participants to hear um, about about all this and um, just the way uh, treatment is going. So thank you so much. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker... Um, it's Dr. Joseph Corey, and Dr. Corey is a professor, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Department of Hematopathology, Medical Director, Clinical Expansion, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Executive Director, MD Anderson Cancer Network, um, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Corey will be addressing the role of the pathologist and the pathology lab current application of biomarkers and diagnostic technologies for people living with blood cancers and keeping copies of your pathology reports. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Corey. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's really an honor to be part of this program and to follow these fantastic talks by my colleagues. It is fair to say that all patients with blood cancer are touched by a team of professionals in the lab that generates results that guide treatment decisions every day. So if any patient happens to walk into a lab, they would see really a humming operation, typically 24-7 in some sections, that conducts a variety of testing types that include protein level tests, genomic tests, genetic tests, that are as versatile as cancer is, and to a large extent today, as personalized as each patient is. Now, biomarker testing is thought of as a cycle. 
a cycle that starts with sample collection that is subject to what we call pre-analytic factors that can play a role in either ensuring accurate testing or sometimes if pre-analytic factors are adverse, those could result in potentially erroneous results. The next phase in the biomarker test cycle is the analytic phase. This is where the sample is subjected to the test of interest, which can range from, in the context of blood cancers, from a simple microscopic examination all the way to tests that have been touched on by my colleagues that include next-generation sequencing, flow cytometry, and chromosome analysis in their various permutations. Importantly, the post-analytic phase of biomarker testing, which touches on the way results are reported, how reports are transmitted, and importantly, also underscores the importance of quality assurance in making sure that the entire biomarker testing cycle fulfills criteria that are often prescribed by national and international guidelines for quality assurance. So if you think of any biomarker test that is needed on a patient with blood cancer, it is important to think of all those components. Now, a few words about the types of tests and the different tests that are needed at different times, time points in the disease course. At the outset of the disease, it is important for us in the lab to make sure that we provide our clinical colleagues with a comprehensive picture of a blood cancer. That comprehensive picture often includes mutation profiling along lines underscored by Dr. Mesa, where we evaluate the mutational states of anywhere between 40 up to a few hundred genes to understand really what that patient's cancer looks like at a genetic level. In addition, we perform protein level analysis to understand the profile of a particular cancer, especially in the field of acute leukemias, and recognize the, the, the specific fingerprint that that leukemia carries in the, at that particular point in time. These initial tests must be versatile and they must be comprehensive to allow room for consideration of various uh, biomarker-driven targeted therapies. Now, after the patient is initially treated, there are, there's a second line of tests that needs to be highly sensitive and you heard from Dr. Benzinger about the depth of, of flow cytometry, measurable residual disease, or MRD, which can attain levels of one cell in 100,000. In some molecular assays, we can reach actually one cell in one million, where we can tease out that abnormal cell using deep sensitivity assays, either at a protein level or at a genetic level. I have touched on the notion of quality. Quality also entails choosing the right test at the right moment for the patient. So it's important for patients to, to recognize that in an ideal setting, 
there should be continuous communication between the caring physician in the clinic and the pathology team that's working in the lab to generate biomarker results. This communication is critical to ensure that the results are what's needed and are comprehensive enough to provide the maximum number of options for the patient. So as a patient, I would like to leave you with this, um, or, or patient advocates, I'd like to leave you with this uh, conclusion that the right test at the right time is what is needed. Communication between your provider and the pathology team is critical, and that every patient should be able to look at their report and in consultation with their provider, be able to find in it critical biomarker results that could determine the course of treatment. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Corey. That was really outstanding. And I think that um, uh, it's so important the pathology, what the, de the pathology department does, and um, and also the, the concept of uh, humming, uh, working, you know, 24 hours a day and all that goes on behind the scenes that people often don't realize. And so thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker um, is uh, Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Director of Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Centers, Survivorship Program, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing how blood cancer biomarkers and diagnostic technologies contribute to your quality of life and lifestyle, and guidelines to prepare for your telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of prepared questions. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for the opportunity to join the cancer care call today uh, to participate in this discussion of blood tests and biomarkers. Um, my topic for today is really talking about how understanding your blood cancer biomarkers or lab tests uh, relate to your life, your quality of life, and um, your uh, conversations with your oncologist. So I'm actually going to begin with preparing for the telemedicine visit in terms of your blood labs. Um, you know, we've had a, a change and, and times continue to change in terms of the access to our charts online. It's now, uh, you know, all the case that all of your medical records are immediately available, any scan, any lab. And so this creates a great opportunity to be aware of uh, what's going on with you medically, but can also um, bring up a lot of questions. You know, as doctors, we go to medical school and we do years and years of training um, to become familiar with the different lab tests that we order. And so there's a little bit of pattern recognition or understanding of what ranges of normal mean. Uh, and it's not uncommon that when you look at your labs as they come up right into your phone or your computer screen that you see a lot of lab values that may be out of range, particularly if you have a blood cancer and you're on cancer therapy. And so when you look at those labs and, or when you talk to your doctor, um, prepare for that appointment by making a list of your questions. Um, I think most doctors will have reviewed your labs and, and will know, you know, which of those labs are worrisome or not. Um, and you should have confidence in that, that sometimes things are going to be out of range and that's okay. But if you prepare a list of questions or if you're frequently reviewing your labs, you can have a conversation, say, tell me what this lab means so that when you're looking at it, uh, you both understand it and also don't find it to be anxiety-provoking. 
Um, and uh, I think that, you know, before the appointment, if you've had the opportunity to review things or if after the appointment there are additional labs or tests done uh, and you have questions or concerns, either uh, plan to discuss those at your next appointment or schedule some time uh, with a telehealth or telemedicine appointment so that you can um, talk about it with your provider and address those questions and, and that you have about what you're seeing um, in your blood. A lot of our patients um, wonder, you know, how does this impact their health or are there things they can and cannot be doing? And I think specifically with blood cancers, there are three different cell lines, your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and your platelets that we frequently monitor and can be affected uh, by your cancer treatments or your disease itself. And so uh, when we talk about lifestyle and quality of life, Many patients can suffer from anemia. There are degrees of anemia. Some of them are very mild and you may not even notice them. Others can be more significant and can impair your ability to do some of the activities that you particularly enjoy, uh, particularly high-intensity cardiopulmonary exercise. Um, so talking with your daughter, doctor and understanding, um, you know, what your level uh, means in terms of your life and lifestyle is a, is a great conversation to have. Things like platelets, which help, which help your blood clot, sometimes those can be low, and there are different degrees of high, medium, and low uh, that could impair the types of activities that you do and your risk of uh, bleeding um, if you were to be injured. So, again, uh, that's a type of blood lab that if you had concerns about, your doctor would very much be able to discuss. And our white blood cell count uh, tells us about our infection-fighting cells. And so um, there are times during cancer treatment where uh, our white blood cell count can be low, and particularly our neutrophil count can be low. And so knowing, you know, what are the activities that you can and can't do uh, based on those labs is an important discussion uh, to have with your doctor. Finally, when we talk about blood cancer biomarkers, and my specialty is myeloma, you know, the way we monitor the disease is by looking at blood cancer biomarkers. And um, often those results don't come back in real time. So we'll see a patient on a day, but those their um, serum protein electrophoresis and light chains won't come back for, um, you know, two days. And so, you know, seeing those, waiting for those results or seeing those results, you know, my patients have described me can be very anxiety provoking. Um, and so, you know, thinking about your quality of life and lifestyle, if those are things that you're worried about or concerned about, um, you know, I think it's important to talk to your doctor and have um, expectations um, as to, you know, what are the levels that are uh, not concerning versus concerning, and also helping yourself doing things, um, you know, like exercising on a regular basis, getting good sleep uh, to help with your quality of life if you are feeling the stress of the disease and waiting for those blood tests to result. Um, so just in closing, you know, it's wonderful that we have access to our medical record and to all of this information. Um, sometimes it can be overwhelming. At the end of the day, I think it's great to just be able to know and appreciate more about your cancer and partner with your doctor, whether it be in telemedicine or in your appointment, um, to understand those labs and tests. Thank you so much, and um, again, have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Donald. That was really wonderful and, and, uh, and wonderful to hear about the, um, the access to records and then, of course, the need to talk to one's physician about what one, one doesn't or does not understand. So thank you so much um, about, uh, for sharing that information. Thank you. And our, our next speaker is, our, is um, a member of the partner organization, um, um, 
Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, as Sarah Tebold, Dr. Sarah Tebold Sinet, and she is Senior Manager of Public Policy and Advocacy, Association for Molecular Pathology, and um, she'll be addressing um, the Association for Molecular Pathology's free programs and services, giving information about their website and how to access them. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tebold Sinet. Hi, everyone. Thank you all again for attending. The Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, is a professional and medical society that represents molecular professionals. These are specialized doctors and qualified doctoral scientists who design, perform, and interpret molecular diagnostic tests. While our members perform tests for all different aspects of healthcare, including COVID-19 diagnostic testing, they are highly involved in molecular testing for cancer. As discussed in such great detail already today, they perform biomarker testing to help determine a patient's prognosis and guide the best treatment plan, in addition to molecular testing to determine a person's risk for developing various types of cancer. AMP is highly involved in patient care by producing clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists and ordering physicians, in addition to heavy advocacy to help improve insurance coverage of these crucial tests. AMP has also become closely involved with the patient advocacy community and launched the first version of our patient-facing website that provides an overview of what occurs in a molecular diagnostics lab, in addition to descriptions of types of molecular tests, such as DNA sequencing, frequently asked questions, free infographics, and frequently updated educational resources. The link to the website will be distributed after the call today. We invite you to look it over and please feel free to contact us with any additional suggestions for material. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much, and just a wonderful resource, everybody. And I should say, at the end of the program, you'll all be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation. It is an evaluation. Um, however, the other part of it is that um, we will also provide any links that we gave today and links that uh, to this organization as well. And uh, so, just to be aware of that, um, so you don't, uh, you'll be having all the additional information um, you'll be getting in the evaluation. Um, and I, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education at Cancer Care, and I'm just going to say a few words about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. And those services are free, and um, they are available to you. Um, so most people call us on our Hope Line, and you'll be getting that uh, phone number and our website as well. Um, uh, when you um, after the program, of course. Um, so, um, and you may have gotten that information already. Um, but many people call us on our hope line. We have about 35 oncology social workers, and people call us for support. They also call us for practical financial and co-payment assistance, as well as assistance with some of the COVID needs that people may have as well. So, a lot of financial need right now, of course, there always has been, but there's more need right now. We also offer online support groups. Um, we offer case management. So if we don't have the resource, we will get you to a place that offers what you need. And we'll stay with you until you have that need met. And we also offer these workshops and also publications. Now with that being said, before we move on to questions, I'm just going to ask you a few um, uh, final questions um, uh, for you to complete. Um, so we again, get a sense of your 
um, experience with today's program. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the definition of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers and why they are important for blood cancer treatment. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how diagnostic technologies and biomarkers contribute to and transform blood cancer treatment. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of new and emerging diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the treatment of blood cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to ask them about diagnostic technologies and biomarkers, including how to access resources for clinical trials. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in diagnostic technology and biomarker clinical trials for blood cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I wanna thank you all for participating um, in these questions. It will help us to plan better programs to meet your needs. And now, um, we have time for the question and answer period, so I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Um, so a uh, question... Um, for Dr. Bensinger, what are some important questions to ask about to test uh, to ask about a test to my healthcare team? Well, I think um, it it would be useful to review with your doctor uh, what traditional tests they're using. Uh, the standard tests, for example, in in myeloma, these are things like protein electrophoresis and serum light chains but then ask about other uh, emerging studies or uh, other emerging tests and are they using those tests. For example, I mentioned the tests for minimal residual disease. This often needs, to, for the highest sensitivity, it often needs to be done on an initial marrow sample. And so it's something that you wanna be proactive about. I mentioned also soluble BCMA. You should ask if they're using this as a biomarker to manage patient uh, treatment and uh, uh, how patients are doing with, uh, with their therapies. Excellent, thank you. Um, 
Question for Dr. Messer. Are there risks to using certain diagnostic technologies? So uh, was that for me, uh, Carolyn? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, Dr. Messer. Um, question are, um, from one of our participants. Are there risks to using certain diagnostic technologies? Well, I think I think the risk I think that's greatest is really in kind of isolated interpretation, meaning you know the patient sees a result of a laboratory test on their patient portal, kind of without the the, the framing or interpretation by by their healthcare provider, you know, and we do see this as an increased issue where tests can be ordered now and patients sometimes have access to them before they're able to really be interpreted by their healthcare provider. Uh, and then they run to the, the internet, and the internet can have many great information, but it may not necessarily be accurate for that individual. So I, I would caution any results, whether it be a written out pathology result or a test from a laboratory study, really should be a discussion between you and your healthcare provider regarding what that test result actually means for you as an individual. So they should set up a, a good, as soon as they see that report, they probably should contact their doctor and set up an appointment or a telehealth appointment? Correct. Well, I think in a range of ways, but nowadays you can, uh, again, request clarification likely through your patient portal uh, or a telemedicine visit or, or some other piece. But I certainly have seen patients sometimes feel tremendous distress from seeing a laboratory study that is out of the normal range, but the healthcare provider may be perfectly comfortable with that result and it's the implications of that result may not be nearly as serious or may not be serious at all. Uh, so it definitely needs to be interpreted. Well, thank you so much. And I, I hope everyone heard that so important. Yes, does someone want to add to that? Yes. Sorry, this is, this is Peter Martin. I think uh, another scenario where there's potential risk is is before the test is even ordered, certain certain tests may give us information that, um, in the inappropriate context, may not may just raise anxiety levels, but uh, and, and even potentially more than that, without having a real um, implication. For example, uh, we can in lymphoid malignancies detect precancerous. Uh, lymphocytes in the bloodstream of patients who will likely never develop cancer. There's a, an akin to that in multiple myeloma with MGUS, and there's, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, there's this chip. And uh, as these tests become more sophisticated and more globally available, they also get easier to order. And I think there's some risk in that these tests get, get done more and more widely, identifying sort of pre-cancers in thousands or millions of patients before we really know how to interpret the test or what to do about them. And so I would say, you know, be careful requesting a test from your doctor before you actually know what to, what you're going to do with the information. That's an excellent point. Um, Dr. Moore, do you want to comment further on that as well? I echo my colleague's comment that, you know, the information is power, I tell patients. We want to know as much as we can. But as Dr. Mason and Dr. Martin, I both alluded to, you know, everything's in context. I mentioned that some of these pre-blood pre, pre cancer or changes in the blood that aren't necessarily cancerous but are 
um, perhaps have health implications in other areas like cardiovascular health, they're important to know about. So I think as we handle the power of our, the information, um, ask questions if you're a patient. Um, don't panic if you see something on a report that you don't understand. Um, and as providers, we're going to do the best we can to always give you our best take on things and explain what we know, um, disclose when we don't, and uh, navigate together. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Corey. Um, do most doctors perform biomarker testing themselves, or do you need to go to a special doctor? Do you want to comment on that, Dr. Corey? So um, most uh, laboratories at uh, large academic institutions and some labs at, uh, that, that function as reference labs perform testing in-house and perform it really themselves under the supervision of a highly sophisticated and highly trained team of professionals. There are um, many examples of tests that could be needed in a community setting where that testing is not available on site, and those uh, tests are oftentimes referred to other labs. Um, so, so I would say that, uh, you know, the, the, the tests that, that uh, would be needed for many of the biomarker evaluation uh, are, are really dependent on where that initial evaluation is happening. Excellent. Thank you very much. And I want to thank our speakers. This has been a, a remarkable call, I have to say. Um, I think that um, it's one that we certainly would want to offer again, that's, that's for sure. Um, and I also want to thank our participants who asked such really great questions. And um, I want to comment about the fact that we could go on for probably another hour or so just because there are so many more questions. I want to comment on that. Um, but I do want to just thank everybody for being so um, so incredibly um, knowledgeable, both in terms of responding to questions, but also in, in asking questions. Really a great group today. Um, so for those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who thought of a question during the program or have another question to ask, we ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned today and discuss with them exactly the question you have or wish to ask and also how it applies to you specifically since they know the most about each of you. That's very important. Um, so that and we offer these programs to give you information so that you can perhaps ask more informed questions of your healthcare team. That's really important as well. Also, for those of you who wish to get additional information about um, you know, molecular testing, we will be, you'll be getting that link to the, um, the, uh, the um, Association for Molecular Pathology that they have information that's credible that you can access that information. You also can speak to your healthcare team about resources that they might want to provide for you because many institutions have materials that they would want you to have. And for those of you who wish to access the service of cancer care, you can simply call us, visit our website, and get that information. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I really do not want anyone to feel you're alone in coping with cancer and in coping with any new concepts that you've learned today or, or with what you're learning today. Um, we want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support 
both your healthcare team, of course, and then all the different institutions that are available, um, the nonprofit organizations that have very credible information about all the different specific types of cancers you have. So you'll be getting information in the SurveyMonkey about many different organizations that would have information for particular types of blood cancers that might be of use to you all to have access to. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.